Everyone has a dark side, a side that leans towards power and the fast lane and causes a man to seek entry into a world that exists invisibly alongside the everyday. A world that average people glimpse on their TVs and in movies, on the news and in newspapers, but never experience firsthand. While most people will never touch upon it, even more don't realize just how close it is to everyday life. Welcome everyone to It's All Relative, a podcast where we explore crime in the family. I'm Kaylee, your host, and the quote at the beginning comes from the book Deadly Associates, which covers the mob murder of Daniel Seifert and the 40 plus years that follow. As always, let's kick this episode off with some Breaking Benjamin. come to the point where I inform y'all that this podcast is about true crime and not only do I have an NSFW vocabulary, but I do not couch any of the things I cover in euphemisms. Unless I'm making a point. If this bothers you, find something else to listen to. All content comes from me and only me, so put down that phone because calling your litigator is fruitless. I'm poor. The last three episodes covered the Calabrese family, a father, brother, and son who were embroiled in the Chicago outfit from the 1960s to the early 2000s. Now we move to a family who were equally embroiled in criminal activities and connected to the outfit. But this time, the family member who tried to inform to the feds didn't get his day in court, and the aftermath continues to bleed into everyone's lives even today. If you remember, the Calabrese family was the catalyst in the formation of a huge investigation and trial beginning in the late 1990s. That operation and subsequent trial is known as Family Secrets. The Seiferts were also involved in Family Secrets, although in a different way. And after that trial, the family was approached by an author, Matthias McCairn, to write their story. This culminated in the book, Deadly Associates, a true story of murder, survival, and bringing down the Chicago mob. The story of the Seiferts really begins with Nicholas, who, and this is from that book by, quote, 1945 had been connected to the mob for years. Nicholas would use mob money to secure bad real estate loans for people whom he and his associates knew wouldn't qualify for a reputable loan at a bank. These loans would be set up with a very high interest rate, and once the people defaulted, which was inevitable, the mob would come in and take back the property, no questions asked. Having made money on both the initial sale and the interest, they would then turn the repossessed property around to another unsuspecting or desperate buyer and repeat the process. This practice, however unethical, was extremely lucrative for Nicholas. The business afforded his family the best things money could buy, including houses, cars, maids, personal drivers, and even horses. But his dealings with the mob, the full extent of which are not completely known to his surviving family members, would begin to catch up with him. What is known is that around late 1955, Nicholas was accused by the feds of being involved in a murder, 
Because of the severity of the charges, in 1956, he took his family and fled to California until his mob lawyers could smooth things over for him. Once his attorneys worked out their magic, the feds eventually dropped the case in 1958, allowing Nicholas to move his family back to Lincolnwood, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. But the case against him and the subsequent location had an adverse effect on Nicholas's business and family, and this would prove to be the catalyst of a steep downward spiral for the Seifert family. The marriage between Nicholas and Antoinette had deteriorated. They fought bitterly. Nicholas openly had affairs, and Antoinette had become a severe alcoholic due to her husband's neglect and his mob lifestyle. For the children, it was already too late. They were forced to grow up too fast, and the boys especially had gotten the taste of easy money and influential power from their father, and they wanted more. Danny was the youngest of four children, with an older sister and two older brothers. Tom, the eldest son, was in his early 20s when they moved to Lincolnwood, Illinois, and had already been forming his own connections with local gangsters. Danny and Bob, three years apart, still had time before forming their own connections, but they watched their father and Tom closely and learned from them. Shortly after they moved, things would begin to change drastically for the Seifert family. Nicholas died of a heart attack in the bed of one of his mistresses, and less than one year later, the IRS came in and seized all of the family's assets to cover the back taxes that Nicholas owed. In the blink of an eye, Danny had not only lost his father, but the Seifert family was now broke. It is unclear if it was planned or not, but Antoinette ended up moving the family to a Northside Chicago neighborhood that happened to be home to several mobsters and their kids. End quote. This point in the text is a bit problematic, and I was just going to skip over it, but I decided it would be better to just address it. So what the quote says is, Quote, these mobsters' children were being groomed to be the next generation and future leaders of the Chicago outfit. It was here the Seifert brothers would form fateful friendships that would ultimately prove to be lethal for Danny. End quote. If you remember from previous episodes, the outfit was unlike other mob families. Those in the mob were there to make life better for their family and kids outside the mob. That is not to say that family members didn't ever get involved. They did. Of course they did. But in Chicago... A mafioso was not to talk about business at home, and unlike the depictions of the Corleones or Sopranos, a mafioso was not supposed to groom their children to take over. That's part of what got Frank Calabrese Sr. in trouble, and part of why no one has gone after Frank Jr. Outfit members have commented that Sr. should never have brought Jr. into the business in the first place. While I'm not saying that no other outfit member attempted to groom a son to enter the mob, the comment that these mobsters' children were being groomed to be the next generation of future leaders feels like something McCarran put in as a dramatic supporting detail without actually looking into how the Chicago outfit actually worked. Additionally, the next comment that the Seifert boys formed fateful friendships that would ultimately prove to be lethal makes me feel like telling McCarran to calm down. Again, it may be true, that's not supported by the entire subsequent book, nor by anything else I've heard said, mostly by the family, since. Friends may have been involved. There's just no proof that it was specifically the kids they made friends with in that move that were those friends. Again, feels like an unsupported dramatic detail. I again quote, Bob, the middle brother, refuses to this day to speak about his connections, friends, or any specific details about his involvement for fear of mob retribution. Neither has used his real name for decades, but the rest of the family does know the basic elements of their stories. A couple years after moving to Chicago, Bob was old enough to join the army, while Tom stayed back in the neighborhood. 
Tom had made friends with some powerful people and he started to make a living by boosting trucks for the mob. He and his associates would put the drivers on their payroll, which meant beating them up to make it look like a real robbery and giving them money not to talk. Once a driver got on the program, he found that he could make much more money giving up a load than doing his normal work. For the more unwilling drivers, Tom and his associates would find other creative ways to convince them. Threats against the driver's family were usually all it took to secure the goods with little to no resistance offered in return. After a few years of this activity, Tom was fully entrenched in his shady dealings and Bob returned home from the military. In need of work and armed with skills learned in the army, Bob became connected with a local motorcycle club. Through them and his brother's connections, he too started working for the mob. It is unclear exactly what aspect of his work was with them, or even for how long he was involved. Danny wouldn't forget what a big-time lifestyle his father had and what he had lost. After the IRS took everything the Seifert's owned, he survived as any street kid does, through hustling. Danny had always been cocky and tough, and on the street he began to hone his skills. He became fast friends with a neighborhood kid named Warren Osborne. The two spent their time together running scams and finding any way they could make a buck. But Danny was different than his friends from the streets. He was talented and extremely ambitious and a natural entrepreneur. At just 15 years of age, he started working with Warren on fiberglass. Warren worked at an auto garage doing fiberglass auto body repair, and he brought Danny in to help make some extra money. Danny learned quickly and found that he worked well with his hands. He also discovered that he enjoyed it. End quote. Now, most available narratives of Danny Seifert portray him as a normal suburban father and husband who was an everyday businessman running a legit business and that he unwittingly fell in with the mob. For example, Chicago Magazine in 2009, in an article named In the Name of the Father, listed Daniel Seifert as a Bensonville businessman. Chicago Sometimes in 2019 an article named Son of Joey the Clown Lombardo victim Daniel Seifert, also listed Daniel Seifert as a 29-year-old Bensonville businessman, attacked and beaten in his office, who was then killed. I want you to keep those narratives in mind as we continue with the story that his actual wife and sons tell about what happened to their family. So continuing from the previous, quote, the two did very well and started making good money repairing cars, boats, photography sinks, or anything else made with fiberglass that they could find to work on. When they still couldn't make enough to support their increasingly demanding lifestyle, they came up with the idea of scamming the owner of the auto garage they worked in. The two agreed to have Danny beat up Warren, just enough to make it believable to the cops, and then steal the cash and stage a fake robbery. After hiding the money and tying up Warren, Danny called the police and told them some black guys had come in and roughed up Warren and taken the cash. No one ever suspected anything, which was the green light for Danny and Warren to do this more than once. For months, the police were on the lookout for a couple of black guys with enough guts to go into the north side of Chicago, where they would have stood out like sore thumbs. Danny and Warren got some extra spending money, and the robbery cases, needless to say, went unsolved. Danny worked with Warren out of that garage for a couple of years, and during this time, he met a young woman named Barbara. Shortly after they met, Barbara became pregnant in early 1962, when Danny was just 17. The two were married. Keeping to Danny's fast-track schedule for a living, they had their first child together on May 9, 1962, named after Danny's late father, Nick. However, now that he was married and had a child, things would begin to change for Danny. 
he realized that he needed more money and a more ambitious source of income and a new direction. Danny and Warren would work together for another couple of years, but eventually they shut their business down in 1964, the year after Danny and Barbara had their daughter, Kathy. Danny wanted more than what he could make in a small business running out of a garage. He wanted the level of success his father had experienced, and Danny saw a unique, lucrative opportunity to do so with fiberglass. He knew that the 1950s and 1960s had seen an increase in the production uses for fiberglass. Danny knew that production use would only continue to increase and decided to form his own fiberglass business. But he also knew that it needed to be built on a much larger scale than the type of work he had done with his friend Warren. Danny just needed the capital to take his business idea to the next level. By 1965, Danny's marriage to Barbara was already failing. The two were constantly having terrible fights and started going through a bitter separation and custody battle. After one particularly heated exchange, Danny followed Barbara to a Toys R Us store, and while she was inside, he proceeded to smash out all the windows of her car with a baseball bat right in the middle of a busy parking lot. By 1966, when he was only 21, Danny found himself separated with two kids. To support himself and his children until he could create his larger Seattle company, he did side jobs whenever he could, including some work for his friend Warren. Danny was trying to balance raising his two children as well as working in order to support them. His wife Barbara was causing him a lot of problems, and their fight over custody was getting more and more heated. She began to threaten to take the kids away from Danny, and he finally couldn't take it anymore. Under incredible stress, his dark nature took over, and one day he approached Barbara and warned her explicitly that if she took his kids from him, they'd find your body in a fucking dumpster. It worked. End quote. I mean, woof. Now, while the separation and divorce is going on, Danny is introduced to Emma by Warren's girlfriend, Sue. And just as a side note, Warren is also married. Let that sink in for a minute. Emma is pregnant when she and Danny meet. She moves in with Danny and works as an au pair, helping him with his kids for a place to live. Before the dumpster comment, Emma does move back home with her parents until the pregnancy comes to term and the baby can be given up for adoption. However, after Barbara is officially out of the picture, Emma moves back in with Danny and not only takes up her au pair position, she also takes on helping out Sue with her pregnancy and subsequent motherhood. And yes, Warren is the father, albeit a deadbeat one. Quote, Just before Emma moved back in, Danny had begun to do work with another contact, Ray Pappas who owned an injection molding company on the north side of Chicago. Ray was another neighborhood contact introduced to Danny by his brothers. But unlike Warren, Ray was someone who knew people. As Danny's experience grew in Ray's shop, so did his skills. A regular 9-to-5 job was simply out of the question for him, and after working together, Ray saw the talent that Danny had and also knew about his family history. Ray felt he was someone to trust, who would do well in a more lucrative type of work. In late 1967, Ray introduced Danny to Erwin Weiner, a well-known bail bondsman and alleged mob financier. At first, Weiner hired Danny for a couple of weeks' worth of carpentry work in the basement of his house. Here, Danny and Erwin got to know each other, and Danny discussed his plans for a company he wanted to start. Weiner, when he learned how lucrative the business could be, quickly offered to secure some investment capital. This was exactly what Danny had been looking for or at least he thought so at the time. 
Together, the two men estimated that it would cost around $10,000 to get the business properly up and running, and since Danny didn't have cash on hand, but had the industry experience, they made a deal. Irwin would bring in another individual as a silent partner, and they would essentially split the ten grand, with Danny owning one-third of the company. Each share would equal $3,333 in 1967, roughly $26,385 in 2021. At this point, Danny knew perfectly well that Weiner was a connected man. He felt that entering into business with Weiner would not only guarantee some starting capital, but would also guarantee steering some steady business into the company. After all, the mob doesn't start a business just to have it not make money. Even with illegal funds going through the business on the surface, there had to at least appear to be legitimate work going on to cover up everything that was criminal in nature. With Danny's share of the company being based on his knowledge and experience, he felt that there was no way he could fail. After all, he knew how these things worked from his own family history. His legitimate side of the business would cover anything his partners did, and he would make extra cash on top of it. But what he didn't realize yet was exactly the extent that Weiner was connected with powerful top-level mobsters. End quote. And to that I say, ha! Ha ha ha! Whether Seifert knew Weiner was connected to the bosses or not, he knew he was getting in with the mob, and the mob controls all its money the same way as its money. But just to make the point I think McCarran was trying to get at, Seifert and Weiner's silent partner was Felix Aldericio, otherwise known as Milwaukee Phil. Milwaukee Phil was an underboss to Sam Giancana in the late 1960s, before becoming the acting boss of the whole outfit when Giancana went to Mexico to hide. So Aldericio is a big kahuna. FYI, Warren doesn't like any of this and bows out. Now, Danny and Milwaukee Phil start to get along like gangbusters. In fact, Aldericio's son, Dominic, hated everything about the mob and his father's role in it, so he left Chicago to become a priest. Quote, Emma remembers, Phil became sort of a father figure to Danny, and it was clear they trusted each other greatly. Danny was fast becoming the mob's son that Dominic would never be for Phil. Also, by the time of the burgeoning merger, Danny and Emma had become a couple. Around Emma's 21st birthday, in April 1968, she and Danny discussed details of his new partner's illicit backgrounds. I knew who Felix Alaricio was, because he was in the news back then a lot for his mob involvement, she remembers. I was nervous about that type of connection, but at the same time I admit it was exciting. I was so naive. There was definitely power in having these guys in business with you, and once I got to know them, they seemed like anyone else that we'd been friends with. If there was any remaining doubt how deep Danny was in with the mob, there would be no doubt left after Danny showed Emma something that signified his connection to them. An unpublished picture and negative of the St. Valentine's Day massacre taken by a mob-connected photographer just after the shootings. Emma isn't sure if Danny got it from Weiner or Phil, but she clearly understood that her husband was now fully connected and that image demonstrated their confidence in him. It was clear that Danny was in solid with the top mobsters in Chicago, and Emma, like it or not, was now along for the ride. Danny's growing list of associates included Angelo the Hook LaPietra, top enforcer for the mob, Joey Doves Ayupa, the mobster who would eventually take over as mob leader from Aldericio in 1971, and alleged mob capo Joey the Clown Lombardo, who came into the business around 1969. Danny's son Nick remembers all of his parents' friends and recalls that they were accepted like any other family member. 
Uncle Joey Lombardo used to take me to the circus and out to lunch all the time. I'd come into the factory to hang out, and I'd go with the guys to pick up lunch for everyone. End quote. Here's Daniel Seaford's boys, Joe and Nick, talking about their parents' wedding. So your family was close, and uh, when Emma and Daniel got married, uh, as, as would happen in, in a 60s, a lot of people get married in a church, and then there was a, a party at, at the house. In this case, it was your parents' house or your grandparents' house? Our grandparents' house, which was uh, my mom's parents' house. On your mom's Melrose side. Park. So she hosted a reception or a party mm-hmm. after the wedding. Yeah, and like an after party. Yeah, and but Al Dorisio couldn't make it to, the, to that reception. None of the guys showed up for that. No, actually, that's wrong. Who will shoot up? Uh, uh, Erwin Weiner was at the wedding. Oh, okay. Oh, he was at the chapel. Yes. But I, not at the party. Right. I saw but not Weiner at the yeah, party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in the right. picture. There's yeah. a picture when your mother and father are walking out, and you can see Weiner in the side. He, yeah. he, he looked as if he was trying to stand out of the picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was... But he wanted his presence known that yeah. there was support. Yeah. That somebody from the outfit was there yeah. to support my dad. And he was, you know, one of the first guys that um, came and, you know, introduced my dad and took my dad to El Dorisio. And, you know, he's, he was one of the first contacts that introduced my dad to the Chicago outfit. So El Dorisio couldn't be there, but did he, uh, did he have a special present for you guys? Oh, yeah, he did. I remember it being this large cookie jar of a lion and uh, that was that was a big deal back then, you know. That was a it was a personal gift as well, you know. And uh, yeah, he gave a hundred bucks too. Yeah. Which for the audience, it's like five hundred bucks now yeah, at back, least. Back then, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did the what did the cookie jar look like? Uh, it's a, it was about this big, and it's of a lion, yeah, you know, brown, and the 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 crown of the cookie jar would come off. And then that's where the cookies were. Uh, and and so I remember is, this because... What is cookies? <laughs> yeah, cookies. Yeah. Cookies. But I remember this cookie jar being almost like, you know, sacred. You know, do not knock it over. Do not, you know. Hell, I didn't even want a cookie out of it because I was afraid if I broke it, the repercussions. Because it was an important thing to my father. But so, they wouldn't even put it up high back then. Yeah. It was like low. Yeah, lights so, shining. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, the so that what what year did uh, Emma and Daniel get married? Was that 67? 67? 67. I think it was 67. Yeah. Yeah. So 63 years ago. Yeah. And that was from Inside the Chicago Outfit, episode 8. You can find that on YouTube. And to be clear, according to calculator.net, that $100 in 1967 actually amounts to $836.14 in 2022 money. And here's Nick talking a little bit more about getting in business with the mob. Uh, your father, Daniel Seifert, had, had two partners. Who were the partners and what was the breakdown of the ownership? What do you remember? Well, the breakdown, how it went, it was three guys. <clears throat> Phil Aldericio, Irv Weiner, and then my father, Daniel Seifert. And they came up with, you know, 33 and a third. And that's how they cooked it up, that, you know, it was divided in three ways. And my dad was initially the guy that started working the business. And then that's when the mob started sending other people, you know, there, like Joe Lombardo and, and the guy Ralphie and different things. And then that's when they were all working the company together. And then 
obviously getting loans from the Teamsters Union and trying to uh, skim the funds from the Teamsters Union into the company and then, you know, sending the, the revenue outside. But working it all together, her dad was the only one actually working, working. Yeah, the he was the only were, actual guy. He was actually trying he, to make a successful business. He was trying to make it a successful business and managing which, which the business. Did, though, right? It was a successful oh, business. Oh, yeah, they're very, very successful. Yeah. You know, um, they had a lot of customers, a lot of clients. Uh, they did a lot of prototypes. They did, you know, they did work for uh, Brookfield Zoo and uh, obviously the Museum of Science and Industry. They, they had, you know, a lot of the vacuum forming um, machines that they produced and they put in those different uh, uh, museums. And then they also did hauls of boats. They had uh, molds and international that they would, you know, make hauls for, for small boats, you know, like Boston, similar to Boston Whaler, you know, stuff like that. Um, all kinds of different fiberglass work. And then they started to get in slowly into the plastic business, vacuum forming and stuff like Injection that. Injection molding. Injection molding. Yeah. Exactly. So that was really illegitimate. You could even say thriving business. Well, they had to, just like Cam said, they had to make it look that way so that it didn't raise any eyebrows, so that they could actually, you know, divert funds to Las Vegas. And, you know, you can't divert funds, you can't get loans from the Teamsters Union and divert funds to Las Vegas with a business that isn't thriving, a business that's bankrupt, you know, now that's gonna cause more problems with the IRS than anything because you can't show the money and they wanted to be able to show the money. That was also from that same source inside the Chicago mob. So the Seiferts are truly in bed with the mob. Daniel is trying to make a go at a legitimate business. But next time we're gonna talk about what happens when things start to go south. I'm going to do something now that I have been a little bit afraid to do because of my imposter syndrome, and plus I don't handle criticism well. You can reach me if you are interested in giving me comments or suggestions at Dispecta, D-I-S-P-E-C-T-A, on Twitter. And here's a little Steeler's wheel to close this out. We'll see you next time on It's All Relative.